You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Michigan Supreme Court has ordered the State Board of Canvassers to put the abortion and voting rights proposals on the November ballot after the board struck them both down last week. Political strategist Jason Rowe reacts to the decision on The Guy Gordon Show. And it's galvanized voters, you know, who might already be pro-choice, but it's also really galvanized voters who consider themselves pro-life. They just want some exceptions, some flexibility. So I think for, for us in Michigan, we, it was something that we, you know, we believed in and we got signatures. And when the Supreme Court came out yesterday, for a lot of us down ballot, it was a very important moment. That's Representative Alyssa Slotkin saying that the approval of the Reproductive Rights for All referendum, the proposal that will now be put on the ballot for November 8th, uh, that the, uh, the, the placement of that on the ballot and the, the fact that it, they got 750,000 signatures has done for them on the Democratic side wonderful things, that it has been an energizer, it's been a momentum builder, it has, in short, been a godsend. To them and she was saying that where she goes and remember she's in a district that leans republican and she's getting a tough challenge from from state senator tom barrett but in this district that leans republican she's hearing and getting support from republican women and independence cut to i come from a district that is overwhelmingly pro pro-life um it is a more conservative district a republican leaning district um but it has been amazing how many republican women have come up to me and talked about how look i could never personally have an abortion but i've never walked in another woman's shoes wouldn't tell another woman how to live her life what we're seeing though is a huge division between those women and the elected uh republican leaders in the state and the candidates in the state uh, the republicans are the the dog that caught the car on this issue. They literally have been preaching about this and talking about it in black and white terms. And then as soon as it happened, they realized that politics doesn't make great policy. Um, and that particularly women understand there's a million reasons when you desperately want a child, you may not be able to carry it to term. And this, the, the a 1931 ban does not speak to the realities that women go through. And, and that's really the key thing here for a lot of women and women I've talked to on the Republican side who say, look, I, I've known somebody, uh, that had a, t- a terrible pregnancy. They wanted this baby so badly, but the baby was beyond redemption that it was not going to survive. They didn't want to carry it to term or the baby died. It had to be extracted. And they're now worried that they're going to have to go to somebody in the government to get approval to have that Removed Now, I know there are people saying, well, that would be life of the mother. Well, maybe their life isn't threatened. And that can be a subjective standard, too. Uh, but they're saying it's an intrusion. Don't want to go to someone in the government. Uh, Jason Rowe is uh, a principal of Rowe Strategic, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party, and looking at what the presence of this proposal might have on the rest of the ballot. Jason joins us this afternoon. Happy Friday, my friend. Good. Is this an overstatement to say that this could affect every race on the ballot? Well, I I definitely believe people could interpret it as being something that affects it. I I think it can in terms of turnout. I think this is something that for voters that care about abortion rights, that, um, that, that, you know, it, it will motivate them to turn out. 
Um, you know, I still think there are a lot of other issues that voters are going to take into consideration. Sure. You know, obviously, inflation, gas prices and things like that. So I do think it'll it'll change turnout a little bit. Um, but I also think the fact that the initiative is on the ballot um, allows voters to separate their views on abortion policy from their candidates for office. And that includes governor, Congress and the state legislature, because the fate of that ballot initiative will determine what abortion policy is in Michigan. And and it really won't matter who the governor is, who your member of Congress is or who controls the legislature if that is codified. Tudor Dixon's response on Twitter was interesting. Uh, the moment that it was announced that the Supreme Court had given the green light to this, overruling the Board of Canvassers, she said this, quote, And just like that, you can vote for Gretchen Whitmer's abortion agenda and still vote against her. Gretchen, time to stop hiding behind your BS ads. She's essentially saying, look, to, to moderate Republicans, independents, anybody that will listen, if you're concerned about abortion rights, you can now exercise that with the proposal at the bottom of the ballot. But if you're interested in other pressing issues like inflation, gas prices, the roads, stick with the Republican at the top of the ticket. Is that an effective argument that, that now you can kind of, as an abortion rights concerned person, you can have your cake and eat it too? Well, I think that underscores, you know, my point that you can separate um, your feelings on abortion policy from the candidates for those other offices. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, I guess we'll know when the election happens, you know, if, if this helps or hurts in, in terms of being on the ballot. You know, I think if it were not on the ballot at the end of the day and you, you really were trying to shape policy, the one place that would be a proxy would be the state legislature, because at the end of the day, the state legislature would be who would write abortion policy for Michigan, not your member of Congress and not your governor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it definitely would. I would probably politicize it more if it were not on the ballot. But it does create an opportunity for voters to separate their feelings on that one specific issue from uh, how they feel about the candidates that they have to vote for. I also interpret this uh, that she seems to be running hard away from the abortion issue. Um, and I mean, she has requested from media people that if you're going to interview me, can we avoid abortion, which I think is is foolhardy. Uh, but will the media and voters let her? Well, I, I mean, you can say it's foolhardy, but is there anything left to learn about her position on abortion? I mean, we can talk about it, you know, for the next 60 days, but I don't think anyone's going to learn anything new. And there are a lot of issues confronting the state. And I think Gretchen Whitmer has a lot of failures, mm -hmm. uh, particularly her commitments in 2018 as a candidate that she hasn't lived up to. At what point are we going to stop regurgitating a conversation that reveals nothing new on abortion policy and start talking about some of the other issues that affect every Michigander, regardless of their gender or their uh, gestation periods in life? Um, and, you know, and probably are the things that most people care about more than a policy that only affects a narrow group of people at the end of the day. And I do think that there's a lot more shoes that are going to be dropped determining what, you know, what policy looks like when it comes to abortion policy at the state and federal level. Now that this is on the ballot, both sides are going to be interpreting the language to their own advantage, in, in some cases, maybe even distorting it to their own advantage. That will create uncertainty that may be by design is that the biggest threat to these constitutional amendment ballot proposals right now 
Well, I think the the ability to amend the Constitution by referendum is probably a, a little more generous than it should be. Um, you know, I do think it is a, a fairly flawed process. And, mm-hmm. you know, I frankly think that the the activists that pushed the the you know, abortion initiative wrote something that would appeal to the most extreme elements of uh, the pro-choice community. I mean, it, it basically eliminates parental consent. It allows late-term abortions. It does a lot of things that are on the extremes. And so there are a lot of people, you know, at the national level that focused on what happened in Kansas shortly after the Dobbs decision in which the argument was the pro-life side went too far to, you know, the pro-life side in terms mm-hmm. of a, a constitutional amendment. I think in, in, uh, a fair argument could be made that the pro-choice side in Michigan has gone too far to the extreme. Uh, and I think it could end up undermining their ability to get something passed when at least if you believe public polls, a majority of Michiganders are identifying as pro-choice. Yeah. In the meantime, with this on the ballot, there will be some crowding out on the airwaves because we know that a ton of money is going to come in from both sides uh, over this very issue. Jason, always appreciate your insights. Have a great weekend. With the midterm elections less than two months away, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barbara McQuaid tells Paul W. Smith that her biggest concern going in is disinformation. We all know Barbara McQuaid, uh, among other things now. She is an MSNBC columnist uh, and uh, reporter or, I don't know what we'd say, legal analyst, I guess. The same for NBC News, MSNBC, uh, a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Uh, and has uh, has been out there in the news. She's much uh, called upon to give her opinion on a lot of news these days. And she's very well aware that there's been an issue, a problem, especially with social media, especially with social media, about false information, disinformation, misinformation. And uh, she's here to tell us about a way to kind of one way to fix that or work toward remedying that. Uh, Professor McQuaid, welcome back to the Paul W. Smith Show. Long time no talk to. Good morning, Paul. Great to be with you. You've got something uh, coming up that you are going to be featured at from the uh, National Council of Jewish Women of Michigan. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so they were interested in learning more about disinformation. Uh, You know, certainly propaganda is something that has been around for a long time. But one of the things that has made it so effective in recent times is the ability for it to spread so quickly on social media. And so, you know, people read things online. They believe them to be true. Sometimes they are deliberately put there, which is what's referred to as disinformation, to mislead people or to just stoke divisions in society. And then sometimes we make it worse uh, by spreading it. Uh, you know, what that's what's referred to as misinformation. I saw this thing. It it was alarming to me, and so I shared it with 10 friends, and, and that's the way it spreads in this very viral way in today's society. So with the upcoming election, uh, the group asked me to come out and talk with them about, you know, explaining uh, this this challenge and, you know, some ways that we might be able to counter the effects of it. I think it, it, it's coming up September 20th, kind of a Zoom program, a virtual, free virtual program, September 20th, 7 p.m., they're calling it the long name, Crisis in America, Misinformation, Disinformation, Malinformation. I don't think I've ever heard that one. And their potential effect on our midterm elections. That's good. That's helpful because it's so hard to know 
what's true and what isn't. But you also have to know that people who are having seminars to tell us what's right, what's wrong, and to be careful, we got to make sure that their agenda is not an agenda to lead or mislead as well. Well, absolutely right, Paul. You know, I uh, uh, hope I'm a credible source. Uh, This is a part of what I teach in a course at the Michigan Law School called National Security and Civil Liberties. Uh, And, you know, one of the uh, items that I, I show are some excerpts from uh, an indictment against a group called the Internet Research Agency uh, that is accused of pushing this stuff into American society. And, you know, we see it uh, targeted to people on the left and targeted to people on the right. And the idea is to uh, generate an emotional response. And so, you know, I I actually have examples of fake ads that were found on Facebook, uh, one targeted toward black voters uh, to try to rile them up and uh, get them to vote against certain candidates. Another targeted at right voters on the right, getting them to you know rile up and uh, uh, be opposed to particular candidates. So it is not uh, a right wing agenda. It is not a left wing agenda. It is an anti American agenda. Uh, much of this comes from Russia. They have you know boiler rooms of people who are pushing messages all day long to try to find fault lines in American society. You know, people have strong issues on guns and abortion. Uh, what, are, what are those issues? And I'm going to push, push, push to get a rile, you know, a rise out of people and push them uh, into this uh, to be fighting against each other. If it seems that we're all fighting against each other uh, more than ever before, I, I think that social media alone is part of it. But I also think that there are malicious actors out there trying to get a rise out of us. And so uh, identifying what's true and what's false, I think, is a very important part of being an informed voter. That's a a, a very good point. Uh, Barbara McQuaid with us, Michigan Law School professor, our former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. You see her on television a lot. Um, This idea of these malicious actors, one of the things uh, that I I thought you were going to say is if we find ourselves, in this case, let's say conservatives and liberals, Democrats, Republicans, whatever, however we delineate. If we find ourselves, if we step back and find ourselves all fighting amongst each other, somebody else is winning. And that mm-hmm. somebody who's winning is not our friend. Could be Russia, could be China. It could be a certain group of extremists. But that's one way. I think if you step back and you go, wait a minute, we're all at each other's necks. Someone's making us be this way. We're not communicating and therefore really trying to fix problems that may be very well legitimate. Somebody else is winning. And I had no idea because I I just haven't stayed on top of these things. It never occurred to me until not too long ago how manipulative other countries are with our social media. And it's it's frightening now. Well, I think one of the things that makes us particularly vulnerable to these kinds of attacks in America is our uh, First Amendment right, you know, our, our freedoms, our openness in society. Uh, people can, you know, put all kinds of things out there. Uh, it comes from all over the world, and it can speed, you know, speed like uh, like lightning uh, to our desktops or to our phones. Uh, you know, we're seeing the use of artificial intelligence through, uh, you know, what are referred to as bots. They can duplicate messages in a hurry. So if there is some uh, particularly malicious 
piece of disinformation, uh, the, the sender can utilize these bots to make it appear that it's moving rapidly, and so it reaches a lot of us. One of the other things that technology permits is targeted ads. And so uh, you may see an ad that appeals to your demographic, and I may see an ad that appeals to my demographic. And so because of the great information that is out there, it's, uh, it's easy to target us. And so identifying those things is very important. Let me just, uh, before we run out of time, which really went by quickly with you, Professor McQuaid, let me say to register for Fall Focus 2022, visit ncjwmi.org. That's a long one, but ncjwmi.org. You can also call 248-355-3300, 248-355-3300, or you could, maybe you could just... Uh, Google the National Council of Jewish Women, Michigan, and uh, you'll see Barbara McQuaid there. I wish we had more time, uh, and we'll talk again soon. All right, Professor? Okay, thank you, Paul. One of the more hotly contested new district races is U.S. House Congressional District 7, with incumbent Democrat Alyssa Slotkin facing off against Republican State Senator Tom Barrett, who was on The Guy Gordon Show Tuesday afternoon. It is one of the most intensely competitive congressional races, not just in Michigan, but in the nation, pitting uh, incumbent Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin in the 7th District against uh, State Senator Tom Barrett, Republican from Charlotte. And uh, you've probably seen some of the new ads that have been uh, flying back and forth. Uh, we have uh, enjoyed speaking with Congresswoman Slotkin from time to time here. It's only fair that we uh, check in with Senator Tom Barrett this afternoon after he gets a major endorsement. Senator, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Guy. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Talk to me about this endorsement. It comes from a law enforcement group, uh, which is, I think, by the day, uh, crime and law enforcement seems to be growing. Uh, and, and we know that President Biden is trying to kind of take that uh, issue away from Republicans. Let's talk about it. Sure. You know, the president certainly is desperate to, um, you know, really shake the snow globe and confuse voters across the country and certainly across competitive congressional districts like here in mid-Michigan to try and confuse voters about the Democrats' record um, and how they've led to just a rampant increase in violent crime across our country. I'm proud that uh, today we were able to announce that the Police Officers Association of Michigan, which is the largest umbrella organization of law enforcement professionals in Michigan, has endorsed my campaign for Congress. They know that I've been an ally in their cause. Um, you know, I am proud to back the blue. And today we're proud that the blue backs me and, and my campaign for Congress. And I couldn't be more proud of their endorsement. I'm very appreciative of the work they do. I have family in law enforcement, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for the sacrifices they make to keep our communities safe. We have seen prosecutors, uh, specifically in two counties, Washington and Ingham, uh, liberalize their policies when it comes to charging uh, on some illegal firearms and some narcotics charges. Uh, they're doing it to try to be, I think, racially sensitive in some cases. Uh, interestingly, the Detroit News tried to assess whether those two counties have seen a drop in crime or an increase in crime, and the prosecutors wouldn't release their crime stats to the news. Do you have anything that, that shows that these these liberal ideas actually can harm us? Absolutely. So Ingham County uh, is the county that surrounds Lansing. You know, Lansing is a community inside of Ingham County. It's the central point of this congressional district where Congresswoman Slotkin and I are, are facing off this November. And Lansing, Michigan ranks 
as one of the most dangerous cities in America now. It was ranked uh, just by the FBI statistics uh, a year ago as the ninth most dangerous city in America. And it had a record-breaking number of murders last year in 2021 alone. Um, so we absolutely know with empirical evidence that these that these so-called solutions by these far-left prosecutors, Democratic activists, progressive activists, don't work. They make communities less safe. And the point that you were trying to make about racial sensitivity or some other, uh, you know, metric of that regard, I think it misses the point that every person, regardless of their race or socioeconomic status, deserves to live in a community that is safe, where their kids can travel to school safely, where their kids can play outside without fear of, you know, people driving past. I mean, we did a, a press conference today to announce this big law enforcement endorsement. We were surrounded by community law enforcement members from across this congressional district. And as we were wrapping up, I mean, this is 9.15 in the morning. Somebody rode a motorcycle uh, in front of the uh, parking lot where we were at. They must have been going, you know, 100 miles an hour down a, a you know, a, a surface street on, on, a, on a Lansing uh, community. I mean, these are things that make communities less safe. They know that the police are not allowed to chase offenders that are fleeing a scene. They know that they're not likely to get prosecuted to the full extent that the law allows. And that lack of accountability has led to an uptick and a surge in violent crime that is most pronounced in, in communities like Lansing here in Michigan. Well, and, and it's also, I mean, these these people that if you don't have uh, cash bail, for instance, you're not releasing them in many cases back to the suburbs. You're releasing them back to c- communities of color that are already plagued with crime. So, right, you know, right. you may be sensitive, well, predatory. but you're yeah, you you are, are literally victimizing them. Um, there you was are. a huge bus today uh, of so-called rainbow fentanyl coming across the southern border. And, and certainly tougher immigration enforcement would help with that. But is it also, in terms of trade policy, time to get tough with Mexico and say, look, get this under control or you will face some harsh trade repercussions? Absolutely. We need a a full court press as it relates to securing our border. Um, This is something that is a no-brainer. I mean, we have a border where we have record number of illegal border crossings under this administration. And with the surge in drugs that are manufactured in China but come across our border because of no enforcement, right into every community across America. Every single town and every single state in the United States is now a border community because of this effect. Mm-hmm. And fentanyl devastatingly now represents the leading cause of death of people age 18 to 45 in America. The leading cause of death of people my age in the United States is, is opioid overdose usually as a direct result of fentanyl being laced into other things that people are purchasing. There's a lot of contributing factors to that, but the final straw that breaks the camel's back is the fentanyl surge that comes across the border. Alyssa Slotkin just voted to hire 87,000 new IRS agents and not a single additional Border Patrol agent at all. That is an absolute disastrous misplaced priority. 87,000 IRS agents is more people then you can fit into Spartan Stadium on a sold-out Saturday afternoon game. Look, I, I I understand what you're saying. I don't know that I would call Alyssa Slotkin certainly a progressive. And when she was on this program back on May 18th, she talked about sending more resources to the border, both to target cartels, 
but also to help bolster our our enforcement there. And she was on the record going against relaxing Title 42. Here's what she had to say. Cut four. One of the bills sets up an intelligence unit that looks particularly at those cartels and understanding their trends, how they're organized, their money, et cetera. Um, and then the other one is just giving more resources down at the border for our not only our customs and border folks, but all kinds of government folks so that they can they can deal with these surges in particular. And we're going through kind of a yearly surge right now that's particularly bad. She she's, you know, bucked the Biden administration on Title 42. She certainly has shouted down Nancy Pelosi on the need for greater transparency when it comes to stock sales, things like that. Can you really paint her as as being kind of a, an ivory tower liberal? Oh, absolutely. Alyssa Slotkin went to the most elite private boarding school in the Midwest at Cranbrook. In fact, guy, my school where I went, we would take a field trip to Cranbrook every year because of the elite amenities that they had there. She is among the most elite in our society. She's Ivy League educated. She is an ivory tower elitist. And if you look not at her rhetoric of what she says, anybody can go on the radio and say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Look at her actual voting record. Her voting record is her principal responsibility as a member of Congress. 100% voting record with Joe Biden, 98% with Nancy Pelosi. These are not figures in dispute. So when you look at what she says versus what she does, she talks like Joe Manchin, but then turns around and votes like Nancy Pelosi. So the talk is cheap. Look at her actual voting record. And the results of that are the misery that families are dealing with across this district and across our country. Record high inflation, highest ever in 40 years, surging uh, energy costs, a border that's wide open, that's unsecured, fentanyl pouring in and rising crime across the country. These are all attributable to decisions yeah. that have been enabled by Alyssa Slotkin. So she may talk a big game around election time to try and poach votes by not sounding like Rashida Tlaib, but that doesn't make her less progressive. Her voting record is irrefutably among the most liberal as, as a member of Congress. Help me understand that this billboard that has been hoisted uh, over Lansing that, that uh, criticizes you for voting against a, what was a bipartisan bill to provide incentives uh, for a number of manufacturing concerns, but specifically for GM's battery plants in Delta Township and, and Lake Orion. Was that a vote of conscience? Uh, they're labeling you as anti-manufacturing. Help me understand it. Sure, it absolutely was a vote of conscience, but it was actually a vote, too, of 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 reasoned and sound principle and practice. I have voted against these corporate welfare incentive deals over 99.9% of them since I was first elected to the legislature. It's a commitment I made to the people of my district and a commitment that I intend to keep. I'm not somebody who says one thing like Alyssa Slotkin and then votes differently once I'm in office as she does. These incentives and the evidence of this, you can see just with the recent development by Ford, we give a $101 million check to Ford to create 3,000 jobs. They cash the check, and before the, before the ink is dry on that check that they cash, they announce layoffs of 3,000 people. So the evidence of this is that these do not work, and they are not the best use of taxpayer money. This General Motors incentive deal is going to put taxpayers on the hook for over $160,000 for every single job that they are claiming to create. And now they've changed the goalpost of how many jobs they actually intend to produce under this incentive deal. So $160,000 of taxpayer dollars for every single job created. We're taking taxes 
from all of the different individual taxpayers and all the businesses that pay into the state treasury. And then we're selecting a very few number of recipients that have the leverage and the lobbying to influence the legislature to get this uh, corporate incentive back. And I will point out that while the bill passed with bipartisan support, it also had bipartisan opposition because there are Republicans Understood. and Democrats yeah. of conscience that disagree with how we do this. And if you look at the metrics of what these corporate decision makers look at, incentives rank low on their list of priorities. In other factors like infrastructure, tax code, regulatory environment, and, and, and really the talent pipeline, the ability to have talent fill these positions is their foremost factor that they look at. When we overlook those issues okay. and put all of our money into incentives, we're, we're taking away money we could be spending on infrastructure and other things that rank far higher on that priority list. It is a debate, given what we've uh, seen from Ford and the layoffs that followed. Uh, Senator Tom Barrett, we appreciate the discussion. We look forward to more of them. For the record, I married a Cranbrook grad. So, <laughs> so I may be in an ivory tower, and so may my kids. But we we well, kicked the we kicked the liberals yeah. out of our tower. It was <laughs> okay. it was beautiful. It was a beautiful campus when I would go there on a field trip. So, right, so it was great. I'm glad rich people can go there. I had to. I just had to pull your chain a little on that. Uh, thanks so much, and you take care on the campaign trail. And we look forward to future conversations. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. All on. right, so long. Uh, Senator Tom Barrett, it's going to be an interesting race there, and we'll stay on top of it for you, and we'll be back. A lot of DTE customers are fed up with the energy company after high winds left hundreds of thousands of Michiganders without power for days in some instances on the heels of a proposed 8.8% rate increase. Ann Arbor City Council voted to explore the option of creating their own power grid by a 10 to 1 margin. Democrat State Senator Jeff Irwin, running in State Senate District 15, is also involved, and he spoke to Guy Gordon. We've talked a lot uh, over the past several months years about uh, consumers cutting the cord, getting rid of their cable TV. Well, the city of Ann Arbor voted 10 to 1 last night in their city council to do something similar, uh, but this doesn't involve cable TV. They would be cutting the cord with DTE Energy and going into a municipal arrangement as a public utility. Uh, this, uh, they, they, uh, passed a, uh, an ordinance that uh, will uh, send a contract, about a half-million-dollar contract, to create a fe- feasibility study uh, regarding on whether or not they could create a municipal electric utility. And uh, we uh, are joined by Senator Jeff Irwin, who is a member of the group that has been promoting this. Uh, Senator, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Guy. It's interesting. We were just over in Holland, I think it was about three weeks ago, where they have been in the business of providing power to themselves for over a 100 years. And we were at one of their beautiful new power generating facilities that's very sustainable and just it's a it's a work of art, really. And so and they have been doing this. Uh, how how would this happen? Would you purchase assets from DTE or take them over? How, how would uh, how would this be uh, how would this be executed? Yeah, thanks for having me on. And you're right; there are communities all over Michigan, Holland, Traverse City, Lansing, Wyandotte, Chelsea. I mean, there's just there's 40 plus communities across Michigan who are getting their power from municipal authority, and that right to do that is enshrined in our state constitution. And so, what Ann Arbor is taking a step to do is to say, let's examine that opportunity 
let's find out if we could have cheaper, cleaner, more reliable power like so many municipal authorities enjoy. And uh, that's what we're attempting to find out with this feasibility study. Uh, Exactly how much would it cost to um, take on the assets uh, here that DTE has and compensate them fairly for that and start to operate on our own. So we just came off of a storm where we saw, at least in, in southeast Michigan and down here in Wayne, Oakland, Macomb, we saw 300,000 businesses and households without power after 70-mile-an-hour winds. There certainly is a reliability question there, and they've got this 8.8% rate increase proposal that's before the Public Service Commission. What was the tipping point for you folks in Ann Arbor that said, you know, it's time to pull the trigger on this and to examine this uh, with a study? Yeah, look, I mean, there are a lot of great people, a lot of hardworking folks at DTE and consumers and these utilities who are out there trying to restore power. And yeah. I don't want to diminish that one bit. But when you look across the country, uh, one of the things you see is that people with public power authorities tend to pay less and get more reliable service and have even greener power. And so those are important priorities for uh, the community I represent. And you know, that's why the community is looking into that. Let's, you know, let's really study the nuts and bolts. Let's look beyond just some of these philosophical elements and get to the data, find out, you know, how much would it cost and what kind of expertise would we have to bring in and, and, you know, could we serve ourselves better? And certainly the problems that we have in Southeast Michigan with reliability, with the very old system that DTE is trying to operate, uh, is part of what's driving that. And then you also get the fact that here in Southeast Michigan, we also have some of the most expensive power that makes it difficult to grow our economy and it makes it hard on residents, particularly low-income folks and seniors on a fixed income. And those are all elements that we need to look out for on behalf of our citizens. In terms of generating capacity, would you be 100% renewable? Is that the goal? Or are you looking from an economic standpoint at a more balanced generating portfolio? I know over in Holland, certainly there's there's pressure and there is a desire to do more renewable energy, but they said, you know, they just don't see that it's quite there yet financially speaking, and from an economic viability standpoint. So they're still doing some natural gas generating and things like that. What would your system look like? Well, we don't know exactly yet until we get through this feasibility study that will look at some of those elements and, you know, try to produce the right sort of cost and fuel mix. I think it's also important to say, though, that when you look at new generation capacity, if you're going to build a new plant, uh, renewables are actually cheaper than fossil fuels at this point. And so, uh, you know, that's going to be a heavy part of the mix. And the city of Ann Arbor has some very aggressive climate goals. Uh, the city wants to be uh, climate neutral by 2030. And DTE's plan is to get to that point much later, at 2040 or 2050. And um, so, you know, I think that uh, that's what this feasibility study is going to look at. Uh, could we move completely away from coal? How fast could we get to a completely clean, carbon neutral uh, provision of electricity in the city? And then how would that play into our costs? Well, I, I, we're kind of witnessing a cautionary tale out west in California right now where um, they, they've had some rolling blackouts in the past. They've had some blackouts in, in the past few hours there where they've made this transition. They're also making a transition to EVs, and yet the grid won't take it. They're telling their EV customers not to charge their vehicles. Um, does that give you pause if for those that are pushing, and I saw them quoted widely on M Live, that want this to be 100% renewable or else? Yeah, look, I mean, that's you know, probably PG&E customers, and you can do this right or wrong under both a public or private entity. And uh, there are plenty of utilities that have struggled with this over the year. I mean, look at what happened in Texas just 
you know, a year ago. Uh, so these are important elements, uh, you know, making sure that the reliability is there is a technical question more than it is a philosophical question. Mm-hmm. And that's why the city is taking this seriously and trying to analyze these questions and figure out, okay, you yeah. know, if we were to take this step and we were to move towards more renewables, what would be required? What kind of backup is required? How would the loads increase as you see more and more people adding electric vehicles? I think that all of our utilities, whether they're public or private, are struggling with this right now because, shoot, as consumers, we're looking at these electric vehicles and they're cheaper. I mean, it's just cheaper to not have to go to the pump anymore, even as prices are falling. Um, yeah, if you if you can if you can find a charger and things like that, depending what your yep. driving habits are. Um, you, you know, it's it is interesting. I mean, remember we had the Detroit public lighting system here in Detroit, which the, the city ended up selling back to DTE. I mean, any anytime you do something like this, it is kind of a leap of faith, and I guess also a massive vote of confidence in a municipal body being able to manage something like that cost effectively. Absolutely. But we look at how the city of Ann Arbor has been doing with the provision of water service for many, many years. And I would also point to, um, you know, the reliable clean water that, you know, Detroit customers get from their system. So, you know, these systems can be run well under either auspices and they can be complete failures under either auspices. Yeah. And my goal is to get past some of the ideology and the philosophy and get to the data, you know, get to those facts about what we could do, what we could bring to the table for customers and for citizens and whether or not we can provide them cheaper, cleaner, more reliable power. If we can, I think we should do that. I think it's worth looking at. And I think that because our Michigan constitution guarantees that right to all municipalities, sure. our communities have an obligation to look at that because it's just so fundamental and just so important to, to residents and businesses. Yet there, there is going to be a huge upfront cost. And when you look at this, a lot of the assets that DTE has, quite frankly, their fixed assets have already been paid for. So how is that comparison going to work out, do you think? Well, once again, this is why we do the feasibility study, right? And, uh, you know, DTE, if we tend to go down this road, they're going to, you know, value their assets very highly. And, you know, we're going to look at their <laughs> depreciation schedule. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what this all kind of comes down to through the negotiation. But we're a few steps away from getting to that point where, um, you know, we're negotiating prices. At this point, we just need to do a much more detailed analysis of all those elements you're talking about, the infrastructure, the mm-hmm. substations, the distribution lines, and, you know, figure out what we think they're worth and then uh, you know take the next step of figuring out you know whether we want to you know take that leap of of you know buying those assets and it would be incredibly expensive the only thing more expensive than doing that would be to continue to uh you know pay more for service that we could be paying less for if we had a municipal authority yeah. i mean uh when you've got an authority that's accountable to the voters and not to the investors and the shareholders you've got different uh, opportunities to drive costs down to provide more opportunities for folks to put solar on their roof more opportunities for people on a fixed income to get rate relief uh, all of that is more possible when you put the citizens uh, at the top of the org chart rather than the investors it uh, it's a fascinating exercise, Jeff Irwin. We wait to see what the what the data brings, and we're as curious as you are. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks for uh, right. getting into it, and I uh, yeah, appreciate they had a good experience in Holland. You know, over half the people in this country have public electricity. They they love their system there. In fact, they've got so much excess capacity, they're taking the steam that that isn't you know the the, the heat that's generated from their generating, and they're pumping it into the sidewalks downtown so that they have snow elimination. In the winter, it's it's they're doing some really, really interesting things there. But again, it's about striking the right balance with the, the generating capacity too. Jeff Irwin, take care and uh, we'll we'll talk further about this.
The United States is on the verge of a rental crisis, with the Census Bureau reporting an estimated 3.8 million people facing eviction in the near future. Democrat Congresswoman Debbie Dingell running in the 6th with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz on All Talk. All right, around the country, uh, the, the combination of the end of eviction moratoriums and soaring inflation. We could see a crisis developing in the next couple of months, another another crisis, with possibly millions of people being evicted from their homes. Why eviction? I mean, that seems pretty intense, seems pretty harsh. Well, in some cases, renters owe more than two years worth of rent, and they got to pay that back to a landlord who wasn't able to collect for the past two or two and a half years. The eviction moratoriums allowed people to stay in their homes, but this was never meant to last forever. And here we are, Kevin, facing what was always known to be a huge looming crisis as people now cannot afford uh, to pay the back pay. Yeah, Tom, I, my daughter's friend was telling me she's moving out of her condo in Detroit. She said she can't afford the rent. It jumped from $1,500 to $2,500 in the last 18 months. Uh, she said simply with inflation, she can't afford her rent and food and gas to get to work. So she's going to find a less expensive place to live. Luckily for her, her lease is up and she's paid up so she can just move. But millions of this people, millions of people in this country don't have that situation. They're behind on their rent and they're facing eviction. And it could happen in the next few months, which is interesting because there's an election in the next few months as well. Uh, joining us now is Debbie Dingle, U.S. Representative from Michigan's 12th District. Good morning. How are you? Good morning to both of you. I'm okay. At least it's Friday. Mm. At least it's Friday. <laughs> how, how did so... How do we get in this situation? So many people so far behind on their rent. And I also feel for the owners of these properties, they, they need their rent to pay their bills as well. They need to collect. I feel for some of them. <laughs> um, it, it, this is a very, very, very complicated subject. And affordable housing in this country is front and center a real issue and one that we need to be talking about a lot more. Everybody deserves the right to live in a safe and affordable home in a safe neighborhood. And the people that are being hit the hardest by what is happening right now are those that are the most in danger, they're in low-income areas, and I worry about everybody, but they're who I um, really worry about. But, for instance, on well, when you were just talking about, when I say I care about some, there are a lot of people that, you know, bought, have a home or a double unit or they bought an investment house and were counting on that rent for their income. And they during the during the uh, pandemic, we wanted to make sure that everybody had a place to live, that people were not thrown out on the street. People who weren't having an income weren't having uh, rents increased. We had a, a, a moratorium on evictions. We set up programs to help people that were having these problems to give people rental assistance. And we're Actually, we're not at the end of COVID. I mean, we're done with COVID, but COVID's not done with us, but we're moving in to uh, a more normal life. Uh, And so we got us. I'm scared. I'm worried for a lot of people. But there are others. Like on Wednesday, I had a teletown hall where a woman in Ann Arbor, um, her rent's continuing to go up, but she's in a larger uh, uh, building. And her increase, her rent is going way up. But her property management isn't fixing any of the violations on her property. They're not doing the maintenance. And she can't figure out any recourse. Why is she paying more for getting no service? Now, 
what I can do and did with her is one I'm personally trying to help, but there are local resources available like legal services for people who can, you know, get free legal advice and try to fight back on some of this. We've got to, at some point, market the law of supply and demand. And if like your daughter's friend in Detroit, they're going to keep raising the rent and they want to get young people down here. Young people aren't going to be able to afford it and they're going to have empty apartments. But we're in a transition period right now with lots of different, you know, we can't take a paintbrush ever. We always want to take a paintbrush and paint everything. There are a lot of different situations here and each of them requires different solutions and different answers. But the biggest problem I think we have is dealing with affordable housing period in this country. Mm. So how do you get through all of that? Because you, you can't just have the government continue to write checks to help people with their rent. At some point, they have to, um, you know, stand up, step up and, and pay what rent they can and live where they can afford afford to. But on the other hand, you also have to have programs to help those who need help while they're trying to pull themselves up and stand up. Yeah, and that's what I'm totally trying to say. You know, during the pandemic, we authorized nearly $47 billion in rental assistance to help renters and landlords. It was to also help the landlords pay for the housing costs. But you're right. We can't do that forever. There is a bill, I'm a co-sponsor of it, for Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act that would expand and strengthen low-income housing and um, would would be what purpose would be built to build more than 2 million new affordable units over the next decade. And we've got to incentivize that as well. Then there are other things we need to do is just to help people. I mean, your daughter's friend to me is the perfect example. She can't afford 2,500 and still put food on the table and, and pay all the other expenses in her life. We need to help lower the cost of prescription drugs, which we did do in the, in, in, um, the, inflation reduction bill. Uh, we got to make sure that we're taking care of our seniors and strengthen Social Security. And and then there are people that, you know, who need it, that we have food assistance programs and we protect people's pensions and, you know, a, a number of other things that we need to do. It's not simple. I wish that it was simple. It is very very complicated. Yeah, well, especially when you combine it with the cost of everything else, like you touched on. Everything else has gone up. It's not just rent. It's the cost of a new car or a used car or gas. Um, I, I've got a son right now who's going to have two more kids, and he suddenly has to move up in an apartment that he can't afford. So what impact might this, do you think, this eviction moratorium expiration, what impact do you think that will have on, on the cost of rents and on the housing market in general? Is it going to cause it to fluctuate in either direction? I think, you know, I, I, I think it's going to depend, honestly, it's going to depend where you live, what community you're in, what the law of supply and demand is. But the problem is in many of our metropolitan areas, I mean, in Washtenaw County, uh, where in Arbor, there's, not, there's very little affordable housing in Ann Arbor. And, you know, people are having to move to further out places and they're having to commute longer, pay more in those commuting costs. I think it's really complicated, but I do, I don't want anybody to be evicted from their homes. I, I want to help figure out what solutions there are to this. 
But as you know what you're doing by having this discussion, you're raising awareness of it. We need more policymakers to be willing to sit down and say, look, there isn't a simple answer. It's complicated. But how do we address the different problems? Uh, and that's what, you know, that's what I want to do is how do we make affordable housing more affordable? So that's what, um, you know. How do we make not more affordable, but also make it more available? We have a labor shortage in this country. Do you think the eviction moratorium that has been put in place has any impact on that labor shortage? I mean, would, will this do? Do you think this will incentivize the 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 expiration of the moratorium? Do you think it will incentivize more people who are able to work to get back into the workforce? First of all, I think it is very very complicated why we have a shortage. Um, there. Maybe people, I actually think that factors that are actually contributing to that are people that were close to retirement and are afraid to go back to work because of COVID. We got childcare. We've lost how many women in the workforce because they can't find childcare, let alone find affordable childcare. Uh, I think when you solve any problem, it may contribute to uh, people going back to work, but it is not a simple answer as to why people are not working right now. And we also, you know, someone said this to me the other day and said, you know, we forget a million people died in this country, too, during COVID, which is a horrific thought. But we've lost people in the workforce. So might it, you know, if if there's an economic need, it might. But I don't actually think that this is the most significant issue about why people aren't returning to the workforce. Yeah, it is complicated. You're right about that. We appreciate your time. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. The economy will be the biggest challenge the Democrats face in November's election. With a recession, high inflation, and a wonky labor market, Republican Congresswoman Lisa McClain, running in the 9th District, went on all talk to discuss that labor market. Hey, welcome to the program. Great to have you. We're going to take your calls here in just a moment. Want to know what you're thinking on this Wednesday? 800-859-0957. 800-859-0957. WJR and what you think about this as well with all the talk of a strong labor market and that that somehow offsets the effects of high inflation, then why are there still 3 million fewer jobs being filled in this country since the start of the pandemic? We have 3 million fewer jobs than two and a half years ago. Far fewer people are working right now, and the low unemployment numbers are because fewer people are actually looking for jobs, which now creates a huge labor shortage. More than 10 million jobs are still available. Companies cannot find enough workers, and liberals claim the low unemployment numbers show that things are really great right now in the economy. Conservatives claim that the more than 10 million open jobs is because of unnecessary government stimulus that keeps people out of the workforce. Whatever the case, Kevin, a lot of companies are on the brink of collapse if they don't find people to do the jobs necessary so what can be done that's the big question a lot of people are asking yeah tom my cousin uh, was flying from fort lauderdale to detroit his flight was delayed he was told uh, there was a staff shortage but the good news was there was another flight in two hours so he went to the airport restaurant to get something to eat an hour later he still did not have his meal the restaurant yeah. apologized saying there were short cooks <laughs> uh, the meal finally came he had to scarf it down and race to the plane to catch it this is the life in the world of worker shortages uh in an op-ed piece elaine cho uh, who was the 24th U.S. Secretary of Labor and 18th U.S. Secretary of Transportation says it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, here to talk about this issue is Lisa McClain, Congresswoman from the 10th District. Good morning. How are you? 
Hey, good morning. I'm great. How are you? Good. We 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 talk and talk and talk about this problem, uh, but uh, there there are ways to fix this, and uh, I want to talk about some of those uh, that were in this op-ed piece and and see if you think that that these are being done or or can be done. And first, it's it's our country's need to address the growing mismatch between the skills needed to fill openings and the skills that job seekers possess. It's you know electricians, plumbers, and other skilled laborers. That is. Um, a very accurate assessment. So when I'm out in the district, the number one, uh, well, not the number one other than, hey, I need to find people, but the skills don't match the job openings. Um, that's why I have a bill called the Post Act that's trying to divert money from colleges. It's new money. It's already, excuse me, it's not new money. It's money that's already there. And instead of giving it to the colleges for a four-year liberal arts degree or Latin studies degree, let's use some of those dollars in terms of grants and and loans, and let's give those to skilled tradespeople. Now, unfortunately, the colleges don't like that because, let's remember, it is a business. But that actually would help solve and bridge some of that gap. Another uh, possible solution uh, was uh, Medicaid work requirements uh, should be considered for able-bodied adults without dependents. In other words, if you can work, you should work to get your benefits. Do you agree with that? Well, I agree with that. And another thing while we're talking about Medicare or excuse me, Medicaid is there is an, an additional 4 million people on Medicare since the pandemic, or Medicaid, excuse me, since the pandemic, because they lowered the requirement because we're still under this state of emergency, right? The, the federal state of emergency. Um, go down to the border and see, um, see the COVID restrictions or the lack thereof. Um, but the federal government still has us under a federal state of emergency, which has allowed more people to the tune of 4 million more people to qualify for for, Medi- for Medicaid. That's not a recipe for success. That's 4 million less people that are paying taxes to help subsidize these, um, these programs. It's not a long-term recipe for, for success. Yeah, I want you to go back to uh, your post act that you are proposing and you've you've written because there's something very similar in the Senate as well uh, from Senators Rob Portman and uh, Tim Kaine. Uh, it's called the Jobs Act, and it basically allows, as you touched on, like Pell Grants in their yeah. proposal to be used at these technical schools and community colleges. Why is there pushback against that? Um, because the big colleges, they're a business. And if we divert some of that money to skilled trades, um, it's supply and demand. Less people will go to colleges um, and they will lose business. They don't want that to happen. Mm. Well, I mean, more people need to know about this because this would be one of the solutions. That's according to Elaine Chow. I mean, she's a former transportation secretary, but also a former labor secretary. Um, and, you know, so there's support. I know she's Republican. So so is the main pushback from your Democratic colleagues? The main pushback is they're in the pockets of the universities. I mean, let's just be honest. The universities are a business. And unfortunately, a lot of the universities are producing a product, being the student, that nobody wants to buy 
I mean, when you come out of college with, with debt, which mind you, we have to forgive now because you, you, you know, you come out of college with a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and your degree is only worth 36 grand a year. That's a problem. That, that, that's a problem. But speaking of this whole labor shortage, what I want to touch on and I want to get this out is we can't fix a problem that we don't think exists. So I had a very spirited debate with Marty Walsh, who's the secretary of labor. And he tried to tell me that we don't have a labor shortage issue. Mm. He tried to tell me that. We had a spirited debate. So after much um, um, public um, or, or much pressuring, let's say, he's agreed to come to my district because I said, well, maybe we don't have a labor shortage where you live, but I can assure you in my district, come to my district and everybody has a labor shortage. I don't care if it's, it's healthcare workers. I don't care if it's manufacturing workers. I'm not talking about the minimum wage. Minimum wage right now doesn't even exist in my district. Mm. So he's Marty, the secretary, finally agreed to come out to my district on October 4th. And I'm doing a roundtable. So if you are a local business experiencing labor shortage, please, please call my office and register to be part of this roundtable with the secretary of labor, because we have to get Marty Walsh, who is the secretary of labor, along with his administration to first realize there's a problem because we can't fix a problem that we don't think exists. Yeah, that's concerning. About, yeah, we only have about 15 seconds left, but do you think there's more we could do about this unnecessary occupational licensing requirements? I mean, hairdressers and interior designers, all these people have to go through all this stuff to be able to work. The short answer is yes. We are overregulated, and, and the government, quite frankly, needs to get out of the way. But if you do that, then who loses their job? All the government workers lose lose their jobs. We don't need government regulation. Get out of the way. Let businesses what they, do what they do best. That's the problem. Too much regulation. Um, we're still under the Emergency Powers Act on a federal on a federal level. All the mandates, all the shutdowns. This administration on day one killed American jobs by shutting down the pipeline. They are not pro-worker by any stretch of the imagination. Well, I hope Marty Walsh, the, the current Labor Secretary, when he comes to visit your district here in Michigan October 4th, that he sees the evidence and comes to an agreement that, yeah, there is actually a labor shortage in this country uh, in many districts like yours. Congresswoman Lisa McLean, appreciate it so much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a good one. 800-859-0957 is the phone number. 800-859-0WJR. They'll do it for this week's Pod Suey's Voter Guide. Keep it tuned to AM760 WJR and thegreatvoice.com all election season. See you next time.